from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, uh, today we're going to start the first of uh, several episodes that we're hoping to do looking at de- looking at democracy in a variety of countries other than the United States. Right. We have um, uh, lots of listeners around the world and uh, um, uh, there are some important themes that we want to con- uh, uh, focus on. And today we're going to start with uh, um, a real heavy hitter. Um, <laughs> his name is John Shattuck. And uh, right now he is professor of practice in diplomacy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Uh, He was, until very recently, uh, president and rector at the Central uh, European University in Budapest. Uh, He's been CEO of the John F. Kennedy Library. He was the second ambassador we've had on the show from the uh, Czech Republic. Yes, we need to find one more. Yeah, and uh, so... uh, he is of you know an expert on Hungarian politics, and uh, for reasons that will certainly become clear, he's um, we brought him in to talk about what's happening to democracy in Hungary. Right, and then we're going to follow that up. We're going to talk with somebody about Brazil. We're going to talk about somebody. Uh, we talk with somebody about France, and we're going to talk with somebody about Brexit. So this is the first of a series of episodes. The first in a series of episodes looking at democracy around the world, uh, in particular at democracies that are moving away from uh, democratic rule. Right, or, or where uh, democracy is either uh, threatened or, or at least um, uh, unstable in a way that it wasn't before. And, and trying to examine, you know, what's going on um, t- with democracy uh, around the world and what do these examples all tell us about that? For one reason, we want to look at this because of what it tells us about the U.S., but but it's also important in its own right mm-hmm. because uh, that's right. You know the uh, the U.S. has always had uh, quite an interest in preserving, if not promoting, democracy around the world. Serving as a beacon, yes. right? Serving as a beacon of democracy. But it's also the case. You know, we we uh, we know from a lot of studies in international relations that democracies are much less likely to go to war with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, democratic peace is a well accepted finding in international relations as we we actually know much less about what happens in terms of the democratic peace as countries move away from democracy right. uh, we may learn more about that in the years in the years to come whether we like it or not yeah. and uh, and and there's something similar to be said about the economies of democracy right, right. I mean that they they because they're more stable they're often uh, raised the standard of living and and so you wonder where that's going but but so um, let let's just take a minute here before we pass on. First of all, we should just acknowledge that we are by no means experts on on these countries, and certainly, you know, not Hungary per no, se. We're, we're learning along with our listeners. right. But so, what we want to do is just again look at these specific phenomena, these ex- specific examples through the lens of democracy, and and try to bring up some of the same uh, questions and and issues that we've talked about in other episodes. So, I think it would be good to start by just saying. Saying, you know, here are some of the the possibilities, some of the hypotheses that people are raising with respect to what makes these things happen. What is it that causes um, this this these crises within democracy? Right. Well, I think we're going to find that there are some uh, similar causes around the world. I think we're going to find that the uh, economic crisis from two thousand and eight has had some lasting and important effects on. Uh, 
on politics mm -hmm. in these countries. I think we're going to find that the uh, the influx of migrants has had quite an influence on many of these countries. And then the other thing is just this kind of loss of a sense of of identity and of, right. of predictability. That's mm -hmm. what I want to say. That that the world was just culturally and um, um, uh, politically, that you kind of knew where things were, and, and economically too, that you could just kind of had these expectations yes. that you could mm -hmm. assume were going to follow through, not just for you, but through your, for your children as well. And Well, these and, things are tied in with economic course, change. Absolutely. absolutely. They're and, tied and in with, with migration. Right. They're tied in with greater... Uh, civil rights for different groups, especially right. in the United States. Uh, that's particularly been an issue, a demographic change. So, yeah, we, we expect to see um, some some commonalities, obviously some distinctiveness. You know, n no country is exactly the same. But we expect to see some some commonalities, both with respect to how these the, these democracies came under threat and, and what happens as a result of it, what happens in the society, uh, um, and, and how is it that that's manifested. Right. What does it mean to say? that de democracy is eroding or that democracy is declining in, in a certain country. And I think we'll see it has a lot to do with uh, the extent to which power is decentralized or not or, right. or concentrated in the hands of an authoritarian leader and the extent to which – so therefore the extent to which uh, you know uh, countervailing institutions are permitted to operate freely or not and extent to which uh, – the the press is allowed to freely operate and the extent to which uh so things of that nature right so um we have a a, a terrific way to start this series um and uh, look forward to hearing from john and jenna let's go john shaddock thanks for joining us today i'd like to start off uh, with a little bit of background information about hungary think it's a country people maybe don't spend a lot of time thinking about. They might know that it's somewhere in Europe and something to do with George Soros maybe, but um, beyond that, they don't know a lot about the place or the people who live there. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about um, the size of, of Hungary's population? Uh, how do people make a living? What are the, the demographics and things like that? Sure. Hungary is a country of about 9 million people, uh, small, middle of Europe, um, it's been for centuries uh, a kind of prize for uh, invaders. So it has a long history of being dominated by outsiders, starting with the Mongols and obviously the Turks and the, the Russians and the Germans and the Habsburgs and the, <laughs> later on the Soviets. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a country that's been a bit of a political football in the middle of Europe. Um, it's... Uh, you know, it was a, a, a strong economy during the communist period, of course, for 40 years. It was a, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. It had a communist government. Um, it was dominated by the Soviet Union, um, and it was a member of the Warsaw Pact. It has almost no history of democracy. Um, it was in it was a country that was part of the Habsburg Empire in the 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and... Uh, you know, it was essentially um, appended to the Austrian uh, empire that came out of Vienna, and then it became a little bit independent uh, toward the end of the 19th century, and then there was what's known as the uh, Austro-Hungarian empire. Uh, but again, there was a very little democracy. The demography of the country, it's um, both very mixed in the sense that there have been many people coming in from outside who uh, 
intermixed with Hungarians, but it's also um, fairly, fairly monochromatic, homogeneous. Uh, it, it, the language of Hungarian is extremely difficult, uh, spoken pretty much only by Hungarians. There are very, very few people outside of the country who speak it. So, so that tends to define the homogeneity of the country. Um, and uh, and then in 1989, of course, it it emerged from the Soviet era, uh, the communist era, and became uh, at least initially uh, a democracy um, and a market economy. Uh, and it was performing quite well in the early days of the post Cold War. Uh, within 15 years, it had joined uh, NATO and also became a member of the European Union. Uh, which it is today, it's, and it's today a member of NATO. So if I understand correctly, there was about a 20-year period uh, where democracy kind of formed and, and began to thrive in Hungary from the, the collapse of the Soviet Union up until about the financial crisis in 2008. So what did that period look like? Well, I think the most important thing to know about that period is that there was never really a kind of formal break from the past, the way there were in some of the other countries in the neighborhood, in Czechoslovakia, for example, which was uh, which had its so-called Velvet Revolution, and uh, then it, it moved beyond, and some of the former dissidents became uh, the political leaders. Uh, the same was true in Poland. In Hungary, um, many of the same people who were uh, functioning inside the old regime actually ended up working uh, in the new regime and the new democracy and the, as uh, Hungary began to move into the uh, into the modern era uh, so there was basically no no real transition uh, the country did well uh, economically in the beginning but uh, again uh, it it was uh, many people wondered whether it was really basically the old regime with new clothing uh, and then when it ended up not doing well, particularly after the financial crisis, it was hard, harder hit than almost any of the countries in the area. The employment plummeted and people had trouble paying their mortgages because they were mortgages were owned by uh, Western banks in Switzerland and elsewhere. Uh, the Hungarians became very disillusioned and they began to think this is really no better than it had been under the under the Soviets. Great. So who is Viktor Orban and how does he figure into all of this? Well, Viktor Orban um, is a fascinating figure in European and specifically Hungarian politics. He's a, uh, he's really been an opportunist above all. Um, he had previously been prime minister in the uh, from 1998 to 2002. Um, it was not a very successful term as, as prime minister in many ways. Uh, he was fairly unpopular. He was kind of a moderate at that point. Um, and when he was defeated in, at the polls in 2002, he, he moved sharply to the right because he began to realize that uh, he had an opportunity to appeal to Hungarian nationalism and, and the sense of isolation that I've been describing um, and thereby increase his popularity because particularly um, a party called the Jobbik Party, the party of the right, uh, was rising in Hungary and, and Orban began to see that obviously his fortunes were going to do best if he, if he moved in a right-wing direction. But he wasn't right. particularly ideological about it. Um, however, I, I just want to put 
for your listeners put in context why this is important at all. Um, what Viktor Orban has succeeded in doing, and we can talk about this more, obviously, uh, is uh, essentially to uh, turn a country that was that had the beginnings of a democracy and was doing reasonably well democratically uh, into an authoritarian state by using the uh, levers of democracy, the institutions of democracy, by basically taking over the country and taking over its institutions, uh, taking control of the courts, the media, civil society, uh, the legislature, and eliminating all the checks and balances, but never... But nobody's in jail. For the there are no political prisoners. Uh, there's been so far no real use of, of violence. Uh, so this is not the same thing as a uh, a violent uh, right wing regime or a fascist regime in that respect. Um, so the formula is really very dangerous, and it's a formula that I think uh, has in some ways been copied by other uh, neo authoritarians outside of Hungary. What were some of the tactics that Orban used to kind of gain power or to to kind of start to to assemble the power that he has now? Well, there were there was one big factor, and we've talked about it uh, briefly, and that was the financial crisis of 2009, uh, which hit Hungary harder than almost any other country in Eastern Europe or any other country in Europe. Uh, created broad disillusionment among the population, which had, after all, no real experience, previous experience with democracy. So that was that was one major factor. Another factor was the what I what I call the sort of isolationist victim mentality uh, aspect of Hungarian culture and society. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Hungary has a long history of being dominated by outsiders, and of course didn't like that. Uh, it also has a uh, a linguistic isolation in that Hungarian is uh, not spoken by any other uh, country or any language even remotely similar to it. It's not a Slavic language. And so Hungarians had their own sense of national pride and, and, and national uh, sort of national feeling. And, um, and so it was quite easy for an opportunist popula- uh, populist, if you will, like Viktor Orban, who, who began to move to the right in this nationalist direction, after he was defeated after his first term as prime minister, it was quite easy for him or possible for him to stir up uh, the nationalist and populist um, feelings of of Hungarians uh, and and then to put before them a, a series of of targets of, of what you know people and and institutions that uh, he said were causing. Uh, the problems that the Hungarians were feeling after 2009. His first big target, uh, ironically, was the Euro- European Union, which uh, which Hungary had joined. But he started basically accusing Brussels as being the new Moscow, equivalent to the the old Moscow in the Soviet days, which tried to manipulate the Hungarians, and also the European bureaucracy, and and of course a lot of the issues around the financial crisis related to the Western European banking and financial industries, which were, which he said were preying upon the Hungarians. So he, he stirred the Hungarians up to see that they had an, an external opponent. He didn't exactly call it an enemy in, uh, in the European Union. 
So this seems like a pretty standard authoritarian playbook, you know, separating people into us versus them, playing on what divides people versus what unites them. I'm, I'm curious, though, if there was an element of nostalgia in Orban's tactics, maybe similar to some of Donald Trump's Make America Great Again type of rhetoric. There's certainly an element of that. And, and there you find Hungarian history was very helpful to Orban as he rose in his far-right capacity and moved into this authoritarian mode because Hungary, after the First World War, had been divided up so many Hungarians uh, uh, were no longer in Hungary, had been made a much smaller country by the peace process in World War One, And the Hungarians never forgot that. They felt they had all these uh, Hungarians living in, in what then became Serbia or Romania or, you know, even Germany and other places that they felt were part of their country. So Orban was able to appeal, appeal to that kind of nostalgia, say we're going to pull together, at least culturally, all these Hungarians who've been split up. But above all, they felt that they had been um, victimized uh, by uh, all sorts of different outside forces. In the case of uh, the fascists, they felt they were victimized by Germany because Germany ultimately let them down, and, of course, Germany lost the war. So all of these feelings were... Um, were out there for Orban to be able to prey upon as he began to uh, move into his authoritarian mode. So here in the U.S., it seems like the it seems like Hungary really came on to our radar about a year or so ago with the uh, immigration crisis. But from what you're saying, it seems like a lot of these forces might have been in motion. A lot of these factors might have been kind of building long before that. Is is that the case? Yeah, it is right. However, you're not wrong to recognize that the immigration crisis and to see that as the thing that brought Hungary to your attention, to see that as, as in a sense, Viktor Orban's springboard to uh, really consolidate his uh, control over the state and his increasing uh, authoritarianism. The You know, as I said earlier, he, he looked for an outside target soon after his second election in in 2010, uh, and the new target was the European Union, and that worked well for him for a while, calling calling Brussels the new Moscow. But, uh, you know, as as time went on, um, he was looking for a new target, and he began to realize, and this is how I think really rather politically brilliant he is and prescient in some ways, he realized that the crisis uh, that was going to affect much of Europe was going to break in a year or two. It was a ref- refugee and, and, a, and, a, and a migration crisis, because, particularly because of all the violence in the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. So he, he kind of foretold that and began to prepare the Hungarians for it. Uh, earlier than the time that it came onto the screen of Americans and the rest of Europe when you saw all these refugees landing in, in Greece and, and making their way north. Uh, he began in really 2014 when I was there two, two years before the uh, 2013-14, yes. He began to say, you know, we've, we've got to be prepared to save Hungarian Christian civilization from the migration that is almost certainly going to come to us from the the violence that's going on in the Middle East. And uh, Hungarian Christian civilization, which he began to make a focal point of his cultural appeal, uh, is going to come under attack. 
And so by the time the refugee crisis really broke in the, in the fall of 2015, when hundreds of thousands of uh, refugees uh, began to arrive in Europe, and, and then many of them made their way up, from, up through Greece to the Balkans and, and Serbia, and then finally into Hungary, uh, you know, Orban made it very clear that uh, he was going to do everything he could to try to prevent that from prevent the hordes, as he called them, from overrunning uh, Hungary. And he he was became very popular for his uh, anti-migration work. The Hungarians uh, who lived on the border town saw how many migrants were coming in. Orban constructed a fence. A, a, it wasn't quite a wall. We're not talking like. Donald Trump on the wall, but uh, but it was a, a pretty nasty um, barbed wire fence that would keep people out. Uh, he he increased the the troops on the border, et cetera, and so he turned his next big target, as as it were, his next big target after the European Union were the uh, the migrants and the whole migration crisis. And for two years, that worked quite well for him. I mean, as the rest of Europe struggled to figure out what to do about migration. Orban, who, of course, you know, violated human rights right and left by refusing to even consider asylum cases for many of these people who were really fleeing the worst possible conditions of violence and, and danger to themselves, uh, you know, nonetheless uh, made himself quite popular with Hungarians who felt that they were protected once again from a historical, from, from the kind of forces that history had uh, constantly been pushing on them. From the outside. So how is Viktor Orban getting this power and what is he doing with it uh, once once he has it? I've heard that he's starting to dismantle the free press and, and universities. So, you know, what types of things is, is he doing to take Hungary from a democracy into more of an authoritarian model? Orban is, uh, has, defi- has, has defined what he's doing in a, a, a very new way. He, he's says he is building an illiberal democracy. Um, but he claims that he is building a democracy, and in some ways he has a legitimate claim to that in the sense that he has been elected now. He's been elected uh, twice, and actually three times if you consider his earlier election. And so he's using the major institution of, of democratic governance, which is a, an election, uh, to seize power, to take power, to take power legitimately, but then to eliminate, and this comes, there's where the illiberal term that he uses comes in, to eliminate what are the basic elements of liberal democracy, and that is checks and balances, freedom of the media, uh, independent judiciary, independent civil society, a pluralist governing system, Instead, he says, no, we're going to get rid of all that. He's quite open about it, um, although he does it through, you know, subtle and legal, if you will, means by using his majority in the in the parliament to pass legislation, which restricts the independence of the judiciary in various ways. And I can talk about that in more detail. Um, so it, it, this is particularly dangerous because, as I call, as I say, it's a kind of a velvet repression. It is it is simply taking over the instruments of government, shaping them to his own purposes, 
And then a big part of this, which I, I need to make sure we get out here early in, or, or during the course of this interview, is that he's building a new oligarchy. Uh, he's, he's got basically all of his supporters and people who are working with him who are the beneficiaries of the takeover of these state instruments. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a glorified uh, spoil scheme, scheme, if you will. And what makes it particularly dangerous is that there's a lot of money coming in from the European Union, as there is to other Eastern European countries, to try to assist them with their infrastructure and development uh, in the post-communist period. And a lot of that money is essentially being uh, used to enter into contracts with many of the new oligarchs in the Orban regime. So he's got a combination of centralized control, economic oligarchy, and in that respect, a significant amount of corruption. And how does what Orban's doing in Hungary tie into some of these broader trends we've seen in Poland and Turkey and Brazil and other countries in in South America, um, thinking about this notion of democratic erosion more broadly? I think that the the context in which we have to look at Orban and and indeed um, all of these neo-authoritarian movements is the is the new populism, the new populist demands that have been coming uh, in the United States and in Western Europe and other parts of Europe as well, again, triggered to some extent by the financial crisis of 2009, but also by a sort of identity, the identity crisis, the people feeling that, you know, particularly in the United States, you have many people who's, who, who feel that they have been displaced by uh, the, the new pluralism of the American society with the uh, high emphasis, and appropriately so, on the diversity. And, and if you're a white male, you're feeling very much threatened. I think you, you have much the same phenomenon in Hungary, um, not just males, but anybody who's finding themselves a little bit on the margins of society uh, is is going to be uh, appealed to by Orban, but 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 I don't want to overemphasize that because I think you've also got plenty of well-educated people um, who are you know but who are who are gaining significant opportunities and resources by allying themselves with this neo-authoritarian oligarchy, uh, and they aren't necessarily the same kinds of people that uh, that you're talking about who are the populist targets in the United States. Um, so it's, it's more complicated than just educational background. So as you've said, Orban has done a lot to dismantle some of the what we think of as classically liberal institutions that might have provided a, a check on his power. So outside of Hungary itself, are, is there anyone left to kind of corral this guy or to, to keep his power in check or to, to keep it from growing uh, within Hungary? Well, I think, I think uh, let me speak about that by, by saying that uh, first that, that I think Orban has been, in, in a sense, unleashed by two uh, major developments, both of which have occurred since the time I lived in Hungary, and in that sense, things have gotten much worse. The two the two developments are very political. Um, one is the election of Donald Trump, and the other is the the waning of the power of 
Angela Merkel and indeed the European Union's own uh, increasing fragmentation and, and difficulties following the Brexit uh, vote. Uh, so in a sense, or, there are no external checks any longer on uh, Viktor Orban. During the time that I was there, uh, the United States was, uh, you know, was fairly clear, as were many Western European countries, in saying that they disapproved uh, of what was happening in Hungary. And there were some ways in which I think Orban was restrained during that period. Uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, uh, had a particularly strong influence over him during the period from about 2010 to 2016. So um, anyway, he's been he's been quite unleashed in that way. Now, having said that, um, where are things going? There's one big vulnerability of the kind of uh, model of, of governance that Viktor Orban is pursuing and, and rather brilliantly pursuing, and in that sense, very dangerously pursuing. And the, the big vulnerability is indeed corruption, as I mentioned before, um, because the model really, call, really develops a kind of new oligarchy who are the political elite who who are the beneficiaries of uh, particularly European Union funding, but other kinds of funding coming out. And the Hungarians are increasingly upset by that. Um, and I don't want to overemphasize what's happening, but over the last three weeks, starting at the end of December, um, there have been major demonstrations, uh, not only in Budapest, but in other Hungarian cities, uh, against uh, various aspects of this new authoritarian, of, of this of this newly manifest corruption, some of these demonstrations go back several years. For example, and uh, during even during the time that I was there, at one point Orban tried to uh, impose a tax on the use of the internet, uh, and that resulted in a huge and immediate massive demonstration against uh, his effort to do so. Over 100,000 people came out uh, in the streets within just a few hours after that announcement, and he had to scrap it, um, and it didn't proceed that, with that any further. The current demonstrations um, are focusing on a new labor law, which uh, is requiring Hungarians uh, to work hundreds of hours of overtime or allowing their employers to require them to do so. And it's, and the labor law basically is, is, is a kind of a, a, an emergency measure to deal with the increasing problem of uh, the loss of labor in Hungary. And this is, this has really reached people who were previously part of the core Hungarian, the core Orban constituency. It, you know, who are labor union members and others uh, around the country who are really upset by this. So where do things go from here? What's, what does civil society look like? Are, are people in Hungary starting to fight back or push back against any of these actions? And is there hope for that to continue moving forward? Well, I think it's, it, it's, I've been very pleased in the last month or two that there's been a lot of coverage of what's happened in Hungary uh, by the uh, international media, by the American media and the European media. That so, I think following it there is probably one one way to do it. Uh, there's one aspect of the crisis that I haven't really mentioned, which I should because I was right in the middle of it, and that is the attack that Orban has consistently been making on 
uh, higher education. And, you know, I think he's, he's done that in a very typical Orban way. And he's, he, it's not that he has come in with stormtroopers to close down the university. Instead, what he's done is to enact a series of uh, regulatory measures that increasingly made it difficult for the university to operate in Hungary. Uh, he did, in fact, require the shutdown of a couple of programs, uh, gender studies uh, and migration studies uh, or, or refugee studies, um, which he regarded as politically wrong. And, of course, uh, no university can accept uh, an impact like that on its academic freedom. But the larger thing that he did was to enact legislation requiring university to have a campus uh, not only in Hungary but in the United States in order to be able to give the international degrees that, it, that which were accredited in the United States in Hungary. And the CEU went ahead and did open up a campus in the U.S. And then essentially Orban said, well, I don't like that campus. I don't think it's sufficient. It's not what I have in mind. Uh, so that's what the government has done. And basically CEU has finally just finding it impossible to uh, continue to function and to award the master's degrees and PhDs that are accredited in the United States in in a Hungarian context. So it is going to have another campus in uh, in Vienna, and the faculty and some of the students will continue to commute back and forth. But it's it's another example of uh, the you know the political cultural hegemony that uh, an intellectual hegemony that is being exercised by this authoritarian regime. This has been a really interesting conversation, John. Thank you so much uh, for all of the good work that you're doing in Hungary and for taking the time today to help all of us learn more about it. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, so <laughs> very, you know, as advertised, very impressive, um, knowledgeable, um, the, the best person we could come up with to talk about Hungary. Um, it really reminded me of um, just what an incredibly hopeful time it was when, you know, when the Berlin Wall came down and all these new democracies were being established and how hopeful and excited people were. But, and, but I remember that we were also, you know, concerned. Countries that didn't really have a history of right. democracy. Mm -hmm. It's hard to just suddenly wake right. up and, suddenly, and, yeah, and be democratic. Right, right. As we've said, democracy is not natural it's and if, if it's not learned it's unlikely to be sustained and that could be some of what we're seeing but we are also you know i mean it is interesting first let's just start by um you know talking about you know what um what set the table for uh orban um you know you have what uh john you know someone who john completely freely admits is is brilliant at kind of reading the, the the political landscape and figuring out how to position himself how to take how to take advantage of these opportunities and you know um, you had this um, country that was in debt to a lot of Westerners uh, and then the crisis happened the worldwide economic crisis of 2008 2009 and uh, a lot of mortgages were, you know, were foreclosed. And, you know, so it's all these people from uh, Switzerland and Germany taking your money and taking your houses. Well, it's a perfect setup for populist policy. Exactly. And, and somebody to blame. It's, it's a, a elites that are, that, are, that are making your life difficult. Yeah. And it is really interesting. I think, you know, one of the things that we'll see and that we certainly see here is just this 
um, effort, A, to divide people, to talk about those people who are not real Hungarians, right, who are not uh, salt of the earth and, and don't, uh, don't have history here and uh, aren't, you know, part of our Christian past, and, and um, those who are, are, are not, um, um, we don't want them here. We don't like them, and we certainly won't, don't want them in power. Right. As we're, that's the populist playbook. Right, exactly. But, but, but also the ability to be able to draw upon uh, educational divides and urban-rural divides mm-hmm. to create what uh, he really, I think, uh, what he calls an illiberal democracy. Well, mm-hmm. I guess Orban calls it the Yeah, Orban. No, yeah, that's, yeah, uh, that's yeah. his phrase. He, he, and, and says it proudly. Yeah, right. The, the, this notion of democracy without liberalism, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. me, really sums up a lot of the problems of populism. Right. And, and you know, he's not wrong— uh, or not completely wrong in calling it a democracy because he has been reelected, but the you know twice right. But um, it's also you know it just uh, we find it just absolutely scandalous right to talk about this as an illiberal as if that's a legitimate thing to have because it what you're saying is that I'm using democracy to undermine the mechanisms that make democracy work. R- Adequately, fairly, right? And, and, and maybe it's useful to I, – I mean we've drawn this distinction before for our listeners and in conversations between the two of us between liberalism and democracy. Mm-hmm. I mean the U.S. is a liberal democracy. I mean people rule. They, they rule through Republican-style government, but, they, but the people rule. Uh, but their, their rights are protected, and mm-hmm. that, that's the liberalism. Right. That minority rights are protected through separation of powers, uh, through a variety of other protections of minorities. It was built in. Uh, to the Constitution in multiple ways. There are protections for the press. There are protections for speech. Uh, so it's it's hard for us in the United States, I think, to, to imagine democracy without the liberalism. Right, exactly. One additional way in which Hungary is obviously very different from the United States and other Western countries is his assault on the Central European University. Yes, although, of course, what's similar to us is that Soros is the one that funded that's it. Right, that's Soros right. Soros seems to be a real target in right, American politics right. that's, as well that's, these days. And that's very interesting. Not coincidentally, I think. Right. And, and you know, and let's, let's just not be shy about saying that, you know, the, the Hungarian Holocaust is, you know, the, the, those kind of anti-Semitic uh, dimensions of the culture didn't go away automatically. And, you know, there have been some clear uh, slights of Soros as being, you know, not just Western and, and not just a member of the elite, but also Jewish. And, yes, and, part and, of the, the Jewish globalist elite. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and, and so that, that is the essence of populism, it, isn't I think it, to find these kinds of enemies? And, and so the... Uh, there's something just really powerful about dismantling that that university, mm-hmm. uh, which stands as such a symbol right. of globalism and, and well, elitism, and of a new Hungary, right? And of a, new of Hungary. a Hungary yeah. that was embracing its its status as a member of NATO, as a member of the EC, uh, you know, and and reclaiming what what John identifies as being this long legacy of Hungarian intellectual uh, achievements, yeah. artistic achievements, and to have that close while, you know, it's a really excellent finger in the eye of these Western elites, you know, it's hard to see how that benefits Hungary or your average Hungarian. Right. You benefits know. Orban, but right, it's hard right, to exactly, see how it exactly, Hungary. exactly, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and that's you know just yet another thing that's that's really really sad about this. Yeah. You know, the idea that if we're not letting in refugees, well, that's great because we don't want them here, but that means you're going to have to all work overtime. 
you know, whether you like it or not. You know, I mean, there's no free lunch. And if you're going to make the society less open, there's going to be costs associated with that 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 are that are not going to you're not going to like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this has been just a terrific introduction to talking about democracy in other countries and being able to draw lessons for our own from it. Yeah, and and um, thank you to, to John. Absolutely. Um, just yeah. we were so you know surprised and pleased that he that he that he came on, and we were not wrong for our for our opinion because he just he really uh, lays it out as well as in, I've, I've, I've 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 heard. Yeah, because he sits at such a neat vantage point, doesn't he? I mean, he, first of all, he was he's trained as a diplomat. He's trained as an academic. Uh, He's trained as an administrator, just Mm -hmm. really unique perspective to what's happening there. Yeah. So we'll be, uh, as we said earlier, we'll be talking about Brazil, we'll be talking about France, and we'll be talking about Brexit. So uh, be sure to join us. May you live in interesting times as a Chinese curse. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, for the recording Institute for Democracy, uh, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.